0: Coming up as the world prepares to make a climate deal, we look back on the first stirrings of sustainability.
1: In the late 60s and early 1970s, people were beginning to think that we were in the midst of an environmental crisis.
0: And the incredible world of soils.
2: I wish everybody could see see what we see when we look through a microscope. There might be thousands of very, very different nematodes, mites, microarthropods. Plus, a
0: new technique promises super high-res ultrasound. This is The Nature Podcast for November the 26th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. This year, 2015, is the International Year of Soils. A muddy subject, but an important one. Soils perform a whole plethora of functions, from the obvious, like giving plants a place to grow, to the less so, like purifying and storing our water. Soils can even keep our bodies healthy. They contain millions of constantly interacting organisms, including pathogens that infect plants and animals, humans included, of course. The way we manage our soils can put these delicate interactions out of whack, potentially leading to the outbreak of disease. In short, the changing health of soils has direct consequences for the health of, well, us. Noah Baker spoke to Diana Wall from Colorado State University, who has written a perspective article on the subject of soils and health. Here's Diana.
2: There have been significant advances in our knowledge below our feet just in the last 20 years. I mean, it is a rapid advance in knowledge of who's under our feet and what they're doing and how they work in factories and food webs, so to speak, to provide a lot of benefits to, to all of us.
3: So what kind of things are we talking here living underneath our feet?
2: Oh, uh, there's, there's some, I wish everybody could see, see what we see when we look through a microscope. There might be thousands of very, very different nematodes, mites, microarthropods, centipedes, millipedes. Oh, it's, it's astounding, let alone the large unknown reservoir of bacteria and archaea.
3: And these bacteria are some of the things that link most directly to disease and health in humans and in animals and plants.
2: Certainly. There are many examples, and, and people could easily, you know, talk to somebody in both agriculture or in veterinary medicine or even their doctors. Uh, in the United States, we have a pinworm that's a small nematode that, you know, you can get. I had it when I was little, and uh, that was one. It didn't cause death or anything like that, but it was it was something that we watched out for. I think likewise in in uh, plants, there are fungi and bacteria that cause diseases of plants and under the right conditions, uh, too much moisture, too little moisture, they can kill a plant or affect, uh, say, a citrus tree's fruit quality. Now what
3: differentiates soil from other reservoirs?
2: Well, I think in soil, what we see is a lot of interactions going on. And and the food webs are extremely important in soil. So we may not know about every single species, you know, exactly what it does, under what conditions. But we do know that food webs exist in soil. And that when we disturb soil, that affects that food web. It kind of breaks it down. And then some of the organisms can become more detrimental to us in causing diseases.
3: And can you give me an overview of how soils and soil health is changing?
2: When we disturb soils, what we're doing is effectively changing this soil that is taking up to thousands of years to get a you know a centimeter or several centimeters. We know agricultural intensification affects the soil surface, it affects the habitat. This is a habitat for all these animals in soil and the bacteria in soil.
3: So it seems that soils can act as a reservoir for many harmful pathogens um, that affect us and our crops and our livestock. How best can we keep these at bay when we're thinking about health?
2: I think we need to think about enhancing all the biodiversity in soil, not just picking on the bad guys or the good organisms. And we, we can't exclude anything in the soil. So if we manage our soils to enhance the biodiversity by compost, by cover crops, by looking at the different management aspects that we could use, the management tools, we will enhance the biodiversity below ground and they regulate the diseases, the pathogens and the prey.
3: And you say we can manage soils, but what does that mean? How do you manage a soil?
2: Well, I think many people in urban cities that are doing, you know, city agriculture, and there's also just us that live in towns that want to have healthy soils for our gardens. And they're managing, in many respects, what's going on below ground and these interactions and this food web. They're actually helping the soil living organisms. And I think we need to think about that in intensive agriculture or when we're doing management to increase carbon sequestration or carbon storage. All of these actions that are going on worldwide, thinking about our future food supply or how clean our water is, we have ignored the soil biodiversity in it. And I think everybody can think about what are they putting on their compost pile in the backyard or how can we do this in small-scale farming and improve soil fertility management to enhance the living organisms in the soil beneath us.
0: That was Diana Wall from Colorado State University. Her paper, as always, and a shovelful of other soil stuff, you can get at nature.com slash nature. Coming up, classic books from the era that coined the word sustainability. And in the research highlights, rings and roses, but no romance in sight. Before that, peering ever deeper into the body with souped-up ultrasound. If you're a parent, or your friends on Facebook are, chances are you've seen an ultrasound scan. The method is used to give many parents their first ever glimpse of their child, a special moment, if a slightly fuzzy one. You see, whilst it's very useful, ultrasound imaging is not very high-res. Researchers at the French research body INSERM have found a way to use tiny bubbles of gas in conjunction with ultra-fast ultrasound to create an ultra-resolution boost. Ultra-confusing? Sharmini Bundel spoke to author Michael Tanta to find out more, starting by getting some background on the standard ultrasound
4: we use today. So ultrasound is a widely used technique in, in clinics. It's used for, to, in order to see real-time motion of organs, Uh, So you can use it in order to to see uh, uh, cardiac motion. You uh, you can use it in order to see blood flow uh, in your arteries, in your veins. Now ultrasound is able to make very good diagnosis of cancer. So a huge amount of uh, different techniques that are able to be implemented on an ultrasound system. But the big problem is that you have very limited resolutions. The resolution of ultrasound is limited to the wavelength, which is typically 0.5 mm. What is nice is the frame rate, 50 frames per second, that makes that you have a, an idea of the motion of organs. But the image quality itself is not very good.
5: So what you wanted to do was find a way to make the image quality high as well?
4: Yes. In fact, we wanted to try to improve the resolution of ultrasound. And one way to improve the resolution of ultrasound is to inject very small microbubbles inside the vascular tree of our organs because these microbubbles that contain gas—it's a, it's a very small uh, bubble containing one or two micrometer a bubble uh, containing gas. These microbubbles are reflecting a lot the ultrasonic waves. So, if you inject just one microbubble inside your vasculature, you will be able to track this microbubble into your organs and see it on the echographic image. Of course, if you want to see the full vasculature of an organ, you have to send mi- millions of bubbles in your vasculature. But in that case, you've got millions of echoes coming from millions of bubble clouds.
5: So, if you've got too many bubbles, you're going to have echoes of ultrasound coming back from all of them, and it's just going to sort of blur out all the detailed information. So how did you get around that problem?
4: We had the idea to use ultra-fast imaging techniques. And when you go ultra-fast, you are able to see each individual bubble, even if there is a huge amount of bubbles in the bubble cloud in your vessels, and as soon as you see the echo of a single bubble, you separate this echo from other echoes coming from other bubbles. And it takes only some tens of seconds in order to make really extremely high resolution images of the full vasculature of your organ at less than 10 micrometer resolution, even if you go deep into organs several centimeters deep into tissues.
5: It sounds very quick and easy, but I'm not sure I would like to have millions of bubbles of gas in my blood. Is that a safe thing to do?
4: Yes. In fact, these bubbles are already used in clinics. It's completely safe. And after 20 minutes, these bubbles are going to to disappear from, from your vessels.
5: So this could be in hospitals?
4: Yes, it could be very straightforwardly transferred into an hospital. And currently we are working on this. And and I hope we will be able to provide first microscopic imaging of uh, vascular tree uh, before the end of uh, 2016.
5: In in hospitals, there are lots of different methods for looking into your body. You can get an MRI scan, things like that. What are the the advantages of this new ultrasound technique?
4: So ultrasound localization microscopy is going to to be the single uh, imaging modality in clinics able to reach uh, some micrometer resolution DP2 organs. If you compare with MRI techniques, which are great techniques, we have an increase of typically 30 to 50 uh, in terms of resolution compared to MRI.
5: So you've gone from ultrasound being quite a low-res thing, half a millimetre, and now you've got a higher resolution than than an MRI machine.
4: Yes, for for blood flow imaging, it's really breaking the barriers of uh, spatial resolution of ultrasound.
0: Coming up at the end of the show, the first GM animal approved for food, an attempt to suppress malaria by tweaking mosquito genes. But first, the research highlights with Noah Baker.
3: Mars is set to get a ring around it when one of its moons disintegrates. But it'll need to be patient. It's likely to happen in 20 to 40 million years' time. A team based in California predicted this event by analysing the forces currently pulling Phobos, one of Mars' moons, towards the planet. The moon would rip apart before it crashed into Mars, leaving rings that could persist for up to 100 million years. That paper is in Nature Geoscience. Researchers have literally made a power plant by wiring electronic circuitry into a rose. The Sweden-based team dunked the rose's stem into a liquid that could conduct electricity. Capillary action pulled the fluid up the stem and into the vessels in the tissue, where it self-assembled into little wires. It's not going to turn your back garden into a power station, but the method could be used to record plant physiology, or even regulate it, say the authors. Find that paper in Science Advances.
0: Climate negotiations are about to kick off in Paris, with world leaders trying to agree on limiting global temperature. Right now, it's the event everyone's talking about. But the underlying motive is much older. Put simply, how should we continue to live on our planet without destroying it? Looking back, the 1960s and 70s were a golden age for sustainability. Not that anyone would have used that word at the time... The word sustainability, applied to the environment at least, first appeared in an ecology journal in 1972 and didn't reach widespread usage for another decade. But five classic books had already lodged the topic firmly in the public consciousness. They're reviewed this week in retrospect by environmental historian Adam Rome. Book quotations read by Jeff Marsh.
1: At a time when sustainability has become A buzzword, it's a word you hear all the time. Everything is sustainable this and sustainable that. The books really helped me think about what the real goal was again. Only One Earth had been sitting on my shelf uh, literally for 30 years. I remember exactly when and where I bought it, but I had never more than glanced at it.
6: From Only One Earth by Barbara Ward and René Dubot. We have forgotten how to be good guests, how to walk lightly on the Earth as its other creatures do.
1: I'd never read Buckminster Fuller's operating manual for Spaceship Earth, although I had read a lot about Fuller.
6: Now, there is one outstandingly important fact regarding Spaceship Earth, and that is that no instruction book came with it.
1: And uh, it was uh, fascinating to, to look at, at those two books for the first time and the other three books, which I had read long ago, in some cases read more than once, and, uh, and to see how stunningly relevant they still were. That, that they raise big, big questions with brilliant and provocative insights into those questions.
6: Everything is connected to everything else. There is no such thing as a free lunch.
1: All over the industrialized world, in the late 60s and early 1970s, people were beginning to think that we were in the midst of an environmental crisis, that we had a whole slew of problems that potentially threatened the very survival of civilization if we didn't do anything about them. Uh, And I I think the timing comes from lots of things. There were all kinds of new technologies after World War II that turned out to be uh, both amazing but also uh, unexpectedly destructive. And it was also a time of political and social upheaval when a lot of people were thinking that we needed to make big changes in society for other reasons as well. So all of that together combined to, to give a sense of urgency.
6: From only one Earth. Is this not a precious home for all of us Earthlings? Is it not worth our love? Does it not deserve all the inventiveness and courage and generosity of which we are capable to preserve it from degradation and destruction, and by doing so to secure our own survival?
1: They look to different things as solutions. Some of them point to technology, some of them point to changing uh, our economic system, some of them suggest we need new ethics, some of them suggest that we need a whole slew of of what the author Kenneth Boulding called social inventions. Uh, to allow us to, to make the transition to a sustainable future. Uh, but I think, I think that, that you're right. There was a tremendous optimism uh, that um, we could pull it together, that if we set our minds to it, there wasn't anything that we really couldn't do. And, and we have, even though we're facing challenges that they were only able to glimpse, like climate change. Um, I, I think we've done tremendous things to move toward a more sustainable future, even though we still have a long way to go.
6: The unfinished tasks are so enormous that there is hardly anyone who cannot find a role to play in the process. From The Meaning of the 20th Century by Kenneth Boulding.
1: Well, I think sustainability is the great challenge of the 21st century. Um, And again, as several of the authors pointed out back in the 60s and 70s, you can't have only one part of the earth or one set of peoples Living sustainably. Uh, It's not going to be sustainable if there continues to be huge gaps between uh, the affluent and and the rest of the world. Um, But so I I think, again, that's part of what I got out of the books is that sustainability is not simply a technical challenge. It's not simply a scientific challenge. Uh, It it really requires thinking anew about economics and politics and social relationships and ethics uh, if we're going to really make it through this century, uh, coming out at the end of it with a sustainable civilization.
0: Adam Rome, who has reviewed five sustainability classics published between 1964 and 72. Find details of all the books at nature.com slash Paris Climate, where you'll also find a huge amount of other awesome content on the forthcoming climate talks, including an epic climate comic that you should definitely download for Thanksgiving reading. COP21 will be hitting the headlines over the next couple of weeks for sure. But this week's news chat is about genetically modified animals, large and small. And here to tell me about them is Ewan Calloway. Ewan, let's start with salmon.
7: Yeah. Big news coming out of the U.S. last week. On November the 19th, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved a genetically engineered salmon. Uh, The fish has got a growth hormone gene that means it matures uh, in about 18 months instead of three years, which was how long it took farm salmon to mature in 1997 when this, this fish was first submitted for regulatory approval. So we're talking nearly like 20 years, the U.S. government has delayed this decision I don't know how many presidents that is, but this has been a long time coming.
0: And why has it taken decades at this point?
7: The line from the, the, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration officials was it's kind of a first of its kind uh, food, and so they wanted to be, re- respond carefully. Uh, all these decisions go out for public comment, and so they have to consider and respond to just about every public comment. Um, it's also a political hot potato, no pun intended. So I, I think you know, it's, it's probably been been kicked around, but I think maybe they decided you know there's no reason not to uh, uh, approve this from a safety perspective at least.
0: People have waited long enough for their GM salmon, perhaps. When will it be coming onto the shelves of supermarkets?
7: Well, after 17, 18 years, it it could end up being never. In the time it's taken the FDA to approve this salmon for uh, sale and consumption, salmon breeders have developed salmon through the normal method, methods that mature just as quickly. But I think the bigger issue is that the, the first genetically modified animal for human consumption has been approved, and so it, maybe it's sending a message to the industry that the U.S. government is open to allowing these animals for sale. Who knows how many there are in development, but the article mentions hornless cattle. Um, I think horns can injure other cows, and so that would be useful. People are talking about engineering pigs that are resistant to uh, this this virus called uh, African swine fever that's decimated pig populations. We could be seeing a, lo- a lot more GM animals in the US perhaps. And
0: this approval comes at the same time as the government in the US are really thinking very hard about their legislation and the way they deal with genetically modified animals and crops in the light of new technologies.
7: Yeah, I think there's been a realization that the laws and regulations that govern how, how we deal with these, these plants and animals are really out of date. This GM fish was created, you know, with 1990s, maybe even 1980s technology. The regulations governing crops are, are designed for technology from that era as well. And we've moved vastly past that. You know, with these gene editing tools, CRISPR-Cas9 systems, it makes it vastly easier to edit the genomes of plants and animals. And the regulatory infrastructures just aren't in place uh, to, to deal with it.
0: Now let's move on to the uh, the smaller of the large and small GM animals, which this week is the mosquito.
7: Mosquitoes, as annoying as they are when we get bit by them, the research here is really about uh, the diseases they carry, ma- malaria in particular. And people have been wondering for a long time, you know, wouldn't it be great if there were no mosquitoes to transmit malaria or mosquitoes couldn't transmit malaria at all? For some time, at least for the last decade or so, people have been working on a technology called GeneDrive to basically transmit uh, genes that either kill mosquitoes or prevent them from harboring malaria through a population. and. The technology has kind of moved in in fits and starts. The idea is is that when two animals mate, a gene has a 50-50 chance of making it to an offspring, a gene carried by a mother or father. What gene drive technologies do is they bias that, and so all the offspring carry that gene. The advent of gene editing, in particular CRISPR-Cas9, has made it vastly, vastly easier.
0: So what is it then that's been published this week that advances the way people
7: are using techniques like CRISPR to make these gene drives? A team in the United States has developed a gene drive in a, a mosquito that sp- transmits malaria in the Indian subcontinent. And what this does is it it basically... It harbors this this gene drive is a gene that provides resistance against malaria, and what their paper has shown is that yes, you can get this resistance gene into mosquitoes, and you can have it spread on to their offspring and to their offspring's offspring, and and so on. What they haven't done is shown that this can actually control malaria. They did they didn't. Uh, use mosquitoes harboring malaria, and they haven't done the sorts of population level experiments that you would need if you were actually going to really use this in, in, in the world in a field trial. That is, you take, say, 100 mosquitoes that have this gene drive in them, introduce them to a population of who knows how many millions of mosquitoes, and see how quickly the gene spreads through a wild population and actually have an impact
0: and I suppose there could even be an unintended consequence of disrupting this much larger ecosystem by fiddling the one part of it.
7: Yeah, I mean, that you've hit the nail on the head with some of the hot-button issues surrounding gene drive, is that you know, we're kind of playing God here. You know, we're, we're mucking with ecosystems without potentially really knowing what's going on, and, and lots of different things could happen. It might just not work. All it takes is, you know, a mutation here mutation there, and the gene drive can't transmit anymore, so you could waste a lot of money introducing a gene drive that, that just doesn't work, that doesn't control malaria. Some people are thinking, let's kill the buggers. You know, Let's introduce genes that uh, disrupt enzymes or disrupt proteins that are essential for egg development. Another team, one here in London at Imperial College, has developed a system that does just that, they're going to publish it in a paper in, in Nature Biotechnology in a couple weeks. And I haven't seen the paper, but I think the same questions hold there. Does it actually kill mosquito populations and preventing the spread of malaria? And how quickly does the, the gene spread? But the ethical issues are potentially maybe a little bit thornier. You could imagine maybe mosquitoes do have an important role in ecosystems.
0: Thanks, Ewan. Both those stories and already some follow-ups are at nature.com slash news. There's a ton of new stuff on our YouTube channel about the climate meeting starting next week in Paris, and that's been keeping Adam Levy busy. So if you missed him on the show this week, check out our three new videos that explain various things about the meetings, the two degree temperature target everyone is hoping for, what a hotter world might look like, and we examine the COP meeting itself, how it works and who the key players are. Check those videos out at youtube.com slash nature video channel or read all of Nature's climate meeting coverage at parisclimatetalks2015.tumblr.com. I'm Kerry Smith. Thanks for listening.